would like to begin today just by inviting you to uh, go to a very familiar passage of Scripture that we've been studying. Um, if you have been with us for any length of time, I've repeated this over and over again. This is the theme verse for the Gospel of John. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And it is found in John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. And uh, I think it's important for us to recognize as we go through this passage that John's purpose ultimately was to share evidence that leads to belief, but that that belief also would lead to life. Let's listen to what it says, John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, our text today, if you read it and you read it just like I read it, you read the text today and you're kind of faced with a little bit of a problem. You're a little puzzled. Maybe you're somewhat perplexed as to what you should think about our present text today. That would be John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, I would say this, that our, our present text fits in with the spirit of John 20 and verse 30, where it says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Look up at the screen again and read what it says. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We're not told the specifics of the signs. There are just many other things that Jesus was doing. In this small paragraph, it's packed with a lot of activity, right? But it's summarized. And as a result, many people are believing. So why are we reading the following? Verse 24, but Jesus on his part, did not entrust himself to them. I mean, they're believing. Isn't that what the whole point of the book is about? To show these people who are given evidence and end up believing. Isn't that what they should be doing? And yet, we find that they are believing, but what does Jesus do in response? It says he did not entrust himself to them. Now, friends, this should somewhat, I would say, um, this should somewhat shock us, for it seems to indicate that our belief isn't sufficient. It should um, shake us a little bit to question if our belief has any lasting consequence or not. But I also think that it should shepherd us. In other words, there's a reason why God has given us this text, why he, he left it in here, because I would say that this is a tough text of Scripture. This is not the normal kind of text that you're going to find in the Gospels. This is a hard-hitting text. Because we're told here that Jesus did all these signs and people believed. And yet Jesus was not willing to entrust them with their belief. Huh? All right, see the difficulty here? See the struggle here? I mean, can you imagine, you know, someone coming and, and saying, you know, I, 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 I believe, I, I believe. And you say, well, Jesus doesn't believe in you. I mean, that's what's going on here, right? They believe. They saw the signs. But Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them. So this is there's a problem here. This is tough. This text should also, I would say, make us uncomfortable. Anyone uncomfortable right now? Well, hopefully you should be a little uncomfortable. It should also make you a little vulnerable as you allow the Word of God to take root. But ultimately, I think it should make us humble. Now, here, this, this text is not here to slap us silly. And I'm not preaching this message because I want to hit you hard with something. But this happens to be the next paragraph in the Gospel of John that we're studying, right? I didn't wake up this morning and say, I think I'm going to preach on this because you need it. We're here because this happens to be next. 
And you know, it's a good thing that we're here because this is a tough passage of Scripture that we could so easily just brush by and say, well, let's move on to Nicodemus because that's a great story. In fact, in John chapter 3, we have the greatest verse of all, right? Well, I tell you what, this is a huge passage of Scripture, and it will reveal for us some truths that will help us in our walk with God. And I just, I just want to encourage you um, to, to, to just join me today and just say, Lord, what is it that you want me to learn? What is it you want me to see? How do you want me to grow as we come to this particular text? Now, remember this. We've seen this before. Um, John really cares about his readers. He's very deliberate about giving them the information, giving them the data, giving them the evidence, and then even explaining what some of the content is we saw in some parenthetical statements, just explaining things, just to make sure that the, the readers are catching and, and understanding what's going on. He doesn't want them to miss the point of what has taken place. He is still in this process of revealing Jesus and his glory to us. So now, as we read this text one more time, I believe that John has three goals in mind for us in this passage. Let's just read this one more time. When, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Lord, help us today not to fight against you, but Lord, to to learn along with you. And Lord, to be honest and humble, to be willing to be shepherded, Lord, by your truth. And I ask, Lord, that, that we, would, we would not put up defenses, Lord, but we would do our best to be transparent before you today uh, because this, this topic and this paragraph, Lord, is for us. Lord, help us, we ask in your precious name. Amen. I would like to say, first of all, now, what this passage is talking about is the presence of a superficial belief that is revealed. There is revealed in this text a superficial belief. Now, um, look at verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. What do I mean by a superficial belief? Well, I want to begin to answer that question by defining some words that will give us some context and some clarity in our discussion. So here's the first word, the word sign, the Greek word simeon. Uh, the, the, the idea there is the theology behind the miracle. Okay? So a sign is really emphasizing the theology or the, the I might want to say, theological teaching behind the miracle. Another word that I think is helpful for us is this word power. Um, and that has, that's a Greek word dunamis, but the idea is, is that what is the source of the power that is behind the miracle? These are all words that are describing miracles, okay? Another word is um, wonder or teras, which has the idea of the reaction of the crowd when a miracle is performed. They're, they respond in amazement. They respond in wonder, okay? These all related to this, this miracle and these, these times that Jesus is, is being talked about in, in verse 23. And then there's this, this other word we call it belief or faith. Uh, can be translated either way. The Greek word is pistuo. And this is talking about the result in the hearts of the people that are watching or taking in the miracle. Okay? You with me so far? These all have to do with miracles. There's the sign, there's a power, there's wonder, there's belief. And, and the idea then is that there's this miracle, certainly Jesus is the power behind the miracle. The, the result of that is that people are left in, in wonder and amazement, but that wonder and amazement isn't necessarily the end of the story. Right, it's part of the process. We want to get somewhere, and ultimately we want to get to belief, but it's a certain kind of belief because even the word belief is used in the Bible to describe a couple of different things, okay? Because we actually have found it right here in this text where it says they believe, and Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not entrusting myself to you. So the first way that word belief is used is what we call intellectual assent. 
they, they mentally or someone mentally um, comes to a place where they're saying, you know, I admire this person. I, I, I agree. There is something amazing about Jesus. So here, here are these people, and they're, they're watching all these signs. They're, they're seeing all these miracles, and they're saying, wow, this person is a miracle worker. I mean, he, he heals the lame. He causes the blind to see. He raises the dead. He, he casts out demons. Look what he can do. He must be touched by God. So there's an agreement, a mental agreement, that yes, there's something special about him. There's something unique about him. And then there's emotional assent. And I'm, I'm saying that emotional assent is really the, the, the feelings and the emotions that you have when you see something that is amazing. You're, you're, you're kind of over, uh, overcome with this incredible awe because of some amazing sight that you've seen or this miracle that you've experienced. It, it could be a, a feeling that comes there as a result of a worship service. It could be, you might want to say, some kind of a spiritual high. I'm using that in quotes as a result of some, some special time with God or maybe being in the, with, the, with the, you know, God's people. It could be a, a particular connection you have with a particular speaker. It could be a sense of comfort that you, you have when you are uh, gathered in, in, in the church and it, it seems like a safe place to you. These are all emotional ascents. These are times when you say, oh, this is, this is good. Now, I, I'm not saying that all of this is bad. You want to come to a church and feel comfortable in the sense of I, I can belong here and people care about me and, and they're truly interested in me. That isn't a bad thing. But hear this, it isn't sufficient for saving faith. It isn't sufficient for me to say, yes, Jesus is a miracle worker. Yes, he has caused the blind to see. Yes, he's raised people from the dead. I agree, he's done that. And it's amazing, and he's an amazing person. And I feel good uh, talking about the things that he has done. And I feel good being among people that also talk about those things. That, friends, is still not sufficient for saving faith. In fact, oftentimes that is where it stops with many people. And they find themselves to be a part of a gathering of God's people and they enjoy the social interaction. They enjoy talking about the things that concern Jesus and the amazing things that he has done, but they never come to the place where they've seen their own sinfulness and their need to confess that sin, their need to repent of that sin, their need to see that Jesus Christ ultimately came, yes, to show his glory and his miracles and his mercy and performing all these, these, uh, you know, these casting out of demons and healing people, but ultimately he came to, to do the one thing, and that was to go to the cross and hang on that cross and take the sin of the world. And we're living in an age today where there's, a, there's kind of a, a pendulum swing back to say we want to be like Jesus in his interaction with people. And it's like, listen, I, I, I want to do what we can to be like Jesus in our interaction with people. But listen, Jesus didn't ultimately come to cast out demons. He didn't ultimately come to fix someone's leg. He didn't ultimately come because someone was blind physically and he was going to give them sight. He came to die on a cross. And he came so that you and I may have life. And not just temporary better life because now you can walk better or you can see better, but eternal life that only comes through the cross. So superficial belief, superficial uh, faith does not go far enough and does not embrace what we're calling true saving faith. Now friends, I believe that's what's taking place here. That these people are not so consumed with who Jesus is in person, they're much more concerned about believing his performance. They were in awe of his miracles, not his messiahship. They were in wonder at his signs, not at his sovereignty. And it is a look at what he has done for me approach that is rooted in temporal and not in theological arenas. I love what D.A. Carson says here. You have it there in your notes. 
to exercise faith on the grounds of having witnessed miraculous signs is precarious. Now, friends, there are, there, are many, there are many churches today that have as their goal and their focus some kind of a miraculous thing taking place. I mean, it is, it is a wonderful thing if you can come to church and experience some miraculous thing that God has done. Well, there's a sense of, so what? So what if you see a miracle? Are you in awe of the miracle? We open up our Bibles, in particular in the Gospels, you see miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. You don't have to see it firsthand. Scripture is true. We believe it to be true. It's there for us to see. Jesus did miracles over and over and over again. Evidence testified. There's so much evidence to prove that they're true. But ultimately, he didn't come to do those. Ultimately, he came to go to a cross. Because that was the ultimate, I want to say, miracle. That he could die on the cross and pave a way that you and I would have free entry to the throne of grace. Carson also says that their faith was spurious. Jesus cannot be duped by flattery, enticed by praise, or caught off guard in innocence. So these people um, are watching and listening and observing Christ, but have only gone as far as agreeing that he is a miracle worker. They haven't come to the place of saving faith. Turn your Bibles, if you would please, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And we're just going to read through a passage of Scripture that I think gives us an illustration of a kind of person that is being talked about here, someone who has superficial faith, superficial belief. His name is Simon. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon. If you're here and your name is Simon, I'm sorry. I don't mean to pick on you. It's a good name. Um but he's not the greatest character. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, they laid, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want Peter talking to me like that. I, I, I think he was exposed for who he really was? Peter told him to pray, and Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. No, no. Simon, you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to repent. 
So clearly Simon was not going through the, the, the motions because he saw his sinfulness and wanted to put faith in the message and the person of the gospel. No, his motive is clearly revealed. He wanted to learn and harness the same power so that he could wield it over people. His motives show the shallowness of his belief. His motives show the emptiness of his baptism. It was a means to an end. Now, friends, I think it's fair to say that the modern umbrella of the church is filled with people who have believed and have been baptized for all the wrong reasons. I would say that Simon believed and was baptized for all the wrong reasons. And I'm using the word believe there in quotes. For all the wrong reasons. Let's just talk about what are some of the wrong reasons why people would believe. Okay, yeah, it could be health and wealth, right? Right, to please someone else, yeah. You guys are reading my notes here, aren't you? You guys are just pouncing out there, ready to go. Let me, let me share, share what I have, and uh, we can think through it through others. How about this? It's what your family expected of you, right? Now, you grew up in a Christian home, and you know it's what mom and dad want, it's what grandma and grandpa want, and so you know, I'm gonna, I, I do it. It's what your spouse required before he or she would get married to you. It was expected by the Christian culture that you were socializing in. In other words, you could be a part of a church, and that church culture is saying, well, listen, one of the things you need to do is you need to, you need to get saved. You need to believe. You need to bap- get baptized. Right? It's just part of, the, part of the, 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 the context of that culture. It's just what you do. It's what you need to do to, to fit into the youth group and to justify having those boyfriends or girlfriends or whatever it might be involved in youth group or to go on that missions trip to Mexico. It was to assuage the guilt you were feeling to get God off of your back. Some people do that. I remember when I was early on in ministry, you know, sharing the gospel with some people. It's like, you know, okay, I'll pray the prayer. You know, okay, now will you leave me alone? You know, well, you know, for me to walk away and say, yeah, I got someone saved tonight. It's like, what are you talking about? Absolutely not. Um, maybe for some, baptism seemed to be like a fun thing to do. You'd be the center of attention. Everyone is looking at you, right? I mean, you're the, you're the person for that time. Or maybe it just it looks good on your resume, so to speak, to show that you care about your family and others. Or, or maybe you, you love to serve and use your gifts, and so you, you went through all these motions because in the context of the church, your gifts are very useful. Maybe um, you were asked to play an instrument in the church band. And uh, just to make sure that everyone was clear, you know, that, that, you know, although you wanted to play in the band, you went through those motions to make sure that you were accepted and there's no question about it. Now, the point here, friends, is this, that there are a lot of wrong reasons why someone could say, I believe, and they could, as a result, then go through the waters of baptism, right? And I think there are plenty of people under the umbrella of the church here in the United States, probably here in the Bay Area, maybe even here in Castro Valley, maybe even here today, who have pursued belief and baptism for the wrong reasons. And it is a superficial belief. I remember when I first came to England, or I came to the States from England, I was 16 years old, my dad took a pastorate, and I was not a believer, I was a rebellious kid at that time, but I remember some of the guys in the church being genuine, saying, hey, Rod, do you play sports? I was like, well, I, I enjoy sports. Well, we have a softball team. Would you like to play softball? Oh, yeah, I'd love to play softball. Well, you have to be a believer, and you have to attend church regularly. And I said, well, I don't want to play on the team then. And, and they may not have realized it, but they were using it as a manipulative tool to force me to go down a path simply so I could, you know, I could fit in and be a part of this team and be a part of the church. Friends, it's, it's sad, but those things happen subtly, right? So we see that superficial belief is not a new phenomenon. It is an old phenomenon. It was present even in Jesus' day, and it was present as even a result of his ministry. 
which is comforting, right? Because <laughs> if Jesus is doing ministry and people are responding superficially, ah, there's hope for me yet, right? And there's hope for us as we're doing ministry too, all right? This leads us now to the second point, which I'm saying is this, the problem of superficial belief. So it's certainly present, but now let's look at the problem. This is really Jesus' response Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Now what's, what's important to recognize here is that the word translated entrust is the same word belief. It's pistuo. Okay? So if you want to think about it this way, um, verse 23, the Jews or the people, they believed. Verse 20, uh, 24, um, Jesus did not believe, in verse 22, ultimately the disciples believed, and we'll look at that a little bit more. So the Jews believed, or the people believed, Jesus did not believe. I, I, I like what John MacArthur says, I think he's absolutely right. Though the Jews believed in Jesus, Jesus did not believe in them. Now again, this, this kind of boggles our mind that we would be even hearing this. Or thinking that this would be true of Jesus, I thought, I thought Jesus was, was accepting everyone that believed in him. Well, yeah, he does, if it is true, genuine, saving faith. But if it is not genuine, saving faith, he isn't going to receive it. Salvation is not on your terms, it's on his terms. He also says that Jesus had no faith in their faith. Their belief or faith was in the miracles performed and not in him personally. So I think it's very, very uh, appropriate to say this. It's clear from this text that the word believe does not always mean that a person has placed a genuine faith in Jesus. Okay? You say, well, oh, wait a second. I thought that's what the whole book is about. And I know people that believe, you know, they're believers, they believe in God, they believe that he exists and all that. Well, that's true. But what's different about the belief that's taking place here? The people believed ultimately in the miracles and the signs. Jesus didn't believe, and we'll see why that's true in, in just a minute because he could see into their heart. The disciples believe, but notice something that's different about their belief. Go back to verse 22. In verse 22, we actually have a flashback, so to speak, section. This is, the, this is John writing about the disciples kind of after the crucifixion, after they're putting all these things together, we're told that they ultimately believed, well, they believed because they, number one, witnessed Jesus' life. Secondly, they believed Jesus' words. Third, they believed the Scriptures. Okay? Did they, did they observe the, mir the miracles? Absolutely. Did they observe Jesus healing people? Absolutely. Did they observe him casting out demons? Absolutely. But they also heard Jesus speak specific things to them about who he is, what he came to do, and the implications of that. He also communicated to them Old Testament truths that identified him as the Messiah, that carried forward the themes of the Old Testament into his own life and what he was here to do, ultimately to go to the cross. The disciples believed, not simply based on going, wow, look at the things he can do, but because of the gospel that Jesus communicated to them with his life, with his words, and with the scripture. Now, do you see how that is far more robust than simply like, Wow, that's a miracle. Look at that person. He did all these miracles, right? You, you go, maybe go to Oakland or San Francisco. Well, maybe you don't want to go to Oakland or San Francisco, but it, you could go sometimes downtown, and there are people that, that do all these strange things. You know, they do this you know, robot dancing thing, you know, or, um, you know, or maybe they're doing break dancing, or maybe they're doing some artist work, and you go walking by, it's like, wow, how in the world do they do all this stuff? It's incredible. But what Jesus did was like that multiplied by 100,000, right? But it's still like, wow, he's an incredible miracle worker. That is not sufficient for saving faith. The belief we find with the disciples is based on substance. 
It's based on what Jesus said. It is ultimately based on the gospel. So simply acknowledging that Jesus is a good man, a great prophet, or even the Messiah is not the same thing as saving faith. Turn your Bibles to um, James chapter 2 and verse 19. In fact, you might have that in your handouts. Do you have that in your handouts? All right. Just notice what it says there. James is saying, you believe that God is one. You believe. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, some people say, listen, I, I, I know this person is going to heaven. You say, why? Because they believe in God. What do you mean by that? Well, they believe that he exists. Okay? The demons believe that he exists. They watch his miracles. They've seen him. They've been around a while, right? They've seen what he can do. But they don't believe in him, right? Big difference. It's one thing to believe and have this kind of general belief in this, 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 this person, this being. It's another thing to have saving faith. And friends, it's so important for us to see that because this, this word belief is thrown out and accepted so much um, when people are really coming with a superficial faith. John is writing this gospel to make it very, very clear that evidence upon evidence is laid out so that his readers would believe and not believe in a superficial way. The kind of belief that John is talking about here is a belief that results in life. Life everlasting, life abundant, new life that comes through the radical change called regeneration. This new life comes only through the gospel. Is it any surprise that the very next story is the story of Nicodemus? You must be born again. Now the sad reality, and I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but the sad reality, friends, is that if what happened with Jesus in verse 23 happened today in our churches, much of the church would respond by immediately embracing these people as true believers and part of the family of God. In fact, they would say, there's been a revival because they believed. But that's not how Jesus sees it. They would be prayed over. They would be asked few questions and possibly ushered through the waters of baptism simply because they said they believed. And here are some questions that they would, well, there's some things that they would likely say. How dare we question someone who claims to have had an experience with God? Who do we think that we are? How dare we question someone's testimony of belief? Isn't that between them and God? If they say that they believe, is that not enough? Well, I'm not going to answer that question. Because I want us to consider the counsel that, that John gives us, or that God gives us through John. Maybe to put it another way, why did Jesus not trust their belief? Why did he reject them? Look at verse 24 and following. He tells us why. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, did not believe them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Listen, many people pride themselves as being a good judge of character, right? Um, others may have a spiritual gift of discernment that is sensitive to see through uh, that which is false. There certainly are more men of genius who can read men better than others. But get this, only Jesus, only God can look truly into people's hearts. In the story of David, we get this, this, kind of, this statement, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? On the heart. Now, man may attempt to look into the heart, some of you ladies that are going to the Bible study are, are working through getting to the heart of the problem. But Jesus just, boom, he can look right into the heart. Only he can do it. Only God can do that. In fact, another passage of Scripture I think is helpful for us here 
from his first Kings chapter chapter th- uh, eight and verse thirty nine. First Kings chapter eight and verse thirty nine. Uh, you can just listen if you like and just j- jot that reference down. It says this: Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act uh, and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. And then parentheses, the writer says, for you, talking about God, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. See, it is God that knows the heart of mankind. Now, specifically, what does Jesus say? Well, um, well, let me, let me just pause before we get there. We've got to be careful here. Is anyone here in this room Jesus? Just, just wondering, you know, this is your opportunity to come out and identify yourself. No, we're, we're not. So if we cannot clearly, like Jesus, look into the hearts of people, that means we've got to be careful that we don't think that we can act like him and say the things that he says. In other words, we, we must be careful here that we don't have, you know, the, the, the belief patrol on the prowl, all right, chasing people down is your belief see okay um that's 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 not the point but i think what god wants us to do is to be shepherded by him and to be humble before him and to really genuinely ask the question god is my belief superficial have i fallen short of ultimately coming to that place and going all the way through by embracing you as my Lord and Savior. Because as, as we turn to Jesus and as we turn to what he says here, I think we can learn from what Jesus says as well as trust his inspired word on this subject. He refuses to believe these Jews because he knows man's hearts. Three, three ways it's described here. He knows all people. He doesn't need assistance in knowing all people. He doesn't need your help. Just in case you're wondering, um, he's okay by himself, okay? He doesn't need you to help him out there. That's the idea. He himself knows what is in man. So he made his decision not to trust their belief because he knows what is in their heart. And he knew what was in their heart. We're not told specifically what it was, but he knew what was in their heart, and it didn't match up to the belief that is necessary for eternal life. You and I don't have the privilege of making that decision. Jesus does. He knows that their faith is not in him as Savior and Lord, but only in the miracles he's performing. And just like Simon the sorcerer, Jesus knows the motives of the hearts of men. He knows that these are professing believers uh, and that they fall short. He knows that man's affections can be stirred. He knows that man's intelligence can be informed. He knows that man's conscience can be convicted, but still come up short in saving faith. Now, friends, there should be a part of us right now that is just asking the question, okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? What is it that you, through this passage, are alerting me to here? Now, friends, it could very well be that you have a superficial faith. It could be that you have a genuine faith, and this is simply an opportunity to reinforce that genuine faith as it is compared to a superficial faith. I think one of the things that we can say, though, is that not all that glitters is actually gold. And the kind of people he's describing here, that he's interacting with here, that he doesn't put his faith in, that he doesn't put his belief in, are like those people um, who are rocky ground hearers. Now, there's a couple of places we could go here, but I want to encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 13 and verses 18 through 23. Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. Again, we'll just read this. We don't want to get too heavily into it, but uh, let's just read this text and just see what, what happens here. The picture is of a man going out sowing. He's got, you know, he's got this pouch, he's got seed, and he's, going, he's throwing the seed, and ultimately the, that seed is, is the gospel being cast out over different kinds of, of ground, okay? And then here we have the explanation of this particular parable that Jesus gave. Now, ultimately, what, what I'm saying as I look at what Jesus is saying about these people is that they, they simply had an intellectual or emotional belief or response to what Jesus was doing. Verse 18 and following. Here then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what, he, uh, what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. So there was a path, as you would probably in, in Israel, I'm sure Jesus just kind of turned around and telling this parable, and this is where they, they grew the crops. There was a path in between, so it was beaten down, and so the seed didn't take any, any root there. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this one who hears the word, but, cares, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Verse 23, though, is really the description of the true soil, the good soil, the, 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 the heart that is prepared and ready here. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understand it. He indeed bears fruit and, and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. See, the rocky soil is just kind of like this temporary thing. It's like, wow, cool, yeah, amazing. But there's no substance to it. There's no seed in the heart of man there. There's the euphoria. There's the interaction. And listen, it's so easy for people. And listen, this is going to happen in our fellowship here. People may come and say, hey, this is great. It's a church plant. And, you know, we've got some great stuff going on. And I want to be a part of the social network. And I want to get involved and do all this kind of stuff. And someone could quite easily come in and be, be in awe of the euphoria of all the different things that we are doing and think that somehow that is the gospel and think that that is sufficient, and think that that is the goal, and that they've arrived in their walk with God when they haven't. And they stay at the superficial level. They'll talk about the things of God, but they haven't come to the place where they're really doing business with God about their sin and confessing their sin and repenting. Now, I'd like then to look at this last part, which I'm saying is basically a response to what Jesus says. And... Uh, I'm calling it the purpose of, the superficial, of a superficial belief explained. In other words, why did John even put this in here? Why did he show us this superficial belief? What's the point? What's the reason? First of all, I think it is for clarification purposes. That we would see the difference between true faith and superficial faith. That we would understand what it means. I don't know if you guys have ever seen... Um, or read the story, Pride and Prejudice. Anyone ever seen that or read it? Maybe somewhat. All right, a few of you will get this then. There's a character in this story um, who comes in early on. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Bennett is like the main character, and the whole point in this, in this story is for these girls to get married off to a good person, but they want to marry for love and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And there's this guy that comes in early in on the scene, and his name is Mr. Wickham. And he starts to build this relationship with uh, Elizabeth Bennett. And, you know, Elizabeth Bennett's thinking, oh, you know, this guy's not too bad. And he seems like a decent, you know, decent guy. And, and uh, they, they have a ball. And at that ball, uh, there's this new girl that shows up, hasn't been around before, but she shows up. She's kind of plain, uh, kind of kind of simple. Um, but apparently, you know, she is going to be, you know, coming with some money. And back in those days, a dowry was really important. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. And, uh, you know, so you, you start off with, with Wickham pursuing Elizabeth Bennett because she's nice and she's friendly and she's just a good character. And it just seems like, oh, okay, you know, this is where it's going to go. And then all of a sudden you hear that Wickham has proposed to this plain Jane gal. And everyone is saying all he wanted was her dowry. And as the story unfolds, you find out his character is like, I, I'm not in this for love. I just want to try and manipulate and marry someone so I can have money for myself. Now, I share that story simply to say here, as we clarify, you may say that you believe, but the question is, does Jesus believe in you? What are your and what were your motives when you came through, might want to say, this, this, this step of belief and then into the waters of baptism? Because it could be all for the wrong reasons, as we've talked about. 
Was your belief superficial? I'm asking you to, just to, to allow these questions to be questions that either bounce off of your heart because they're not true, or if they are true, to take root and for, you, for the Holy Spirit to have his way with you. Okay, just be honest and humble. All right, Were your, uh, was your belief rooted in wrong motives? He knows your heart. He knows what's true. Are they exercised in selfish goals? Are they achieved through some religious ritual or experience? Was your belief, um, so you still trusting in your efforts and your works to please God? It's amazing to me how many people who are part of the body of Christ still function in their walk with God post-salvation as if they have to prove to God that they are worthy. Just hear this. If you are a child of God, if you've embraced him as your Lord and Savior, if you confess your sin um, in, in, in just total, unabandoned uh, way to say, God, I, I am a sinful creature. You died on the cross for my sin, and I confess my sin. It is what you say it is. I repent of my sin, and I'm trusting you completely, totally uh, to, to be my Savior and to pay for my sin, and I and I, I see you as my Lord and Savior. If, if, if you have done that, get this. You are as righteous as you will ever be. You don't have to impress God one bit. Now, your goal is still to please him. That simply means that you're obedient to him in what he is instructing you as master, as Lord. But you don't wake up every day and say, God, I'm... Did I please you today? And did, I, did I measure up today? And did I do this? And did I read my Bible enough? And did I pray long enough? And to, you, you slip back into bondage. Now, friends, it's so easy for us to slip into a superficial lifestyle, even though we may have a true conversion to. As we saw, saving faith is rooted in the life of Christ, the words of Christ and the confirmation of the scriptures. Here's the second reason we might spend a little bit more time in this, and I would say warning. Could this, could this be talking about us? Now, this is not easy. Um, years ago, when I was a pastor in Michigan, I went to... Uh, a place called the Christian Salvage Mission. We happened to be having a, uh, a missions conference, and the church that I was at supported national pastors. And so they had all come over from all different places, Argentina and Serbia and, and India and all these different places. So all these national pastor guys, great, great group of guys. But one of the things they wanted to do is they wanted to go to this Christian Salvage Mission because what this mission would do is they would take, they would take all of this um, Sunday school material, because um, if you know anything about church curriculum, it's like once, once it's used that year, it's like it's, it's done, it's over with. So they would get all this excess stuff, they'd gather it, and they would save it for missionaries, and missionaries could come. They could take whatever they could carry, and they could box it and send it to their place. So these guys were like, oh, man, flannel graphs and everything, right? There, and there was also theological books. There were also cassettes, and I don't think CDs were around at that point in time. So this takes us back a while, okay? Um, but I remember going with them, and, and typically... Pastors didn't get anything. It was only missionaries. So, you know, I have to be a missionary. But I happened to stumble across this one cassette tape. It was by R.C. Sproul. And it was entitled, A Warning to Professors. You have to understand, I was kind of, you know, still young and I was growing. And I thought, oh, man, this is great. I want to hear what he has to say. You know, it's going to be some kind of a seminary dialogue discussion. And, you know, so I'm like, oh, I'm really excited. And I put it in and it wasn't what I expected at all. And it was a message that he preached that was a warning to professors, meaning a warning to those who are professing believers. And in this message, he identified three groups. And this is what has been helpful for me through the years. I've listened to it. It's been a long time since I've listened to it. But I remember listening to it a number of times. He came up with three categories. Now, this is helpful. There's unbelievers. Those who do not know the Lord, who don't care to know the Lord, or they've heard the gospel, they don't want anything to do with the gospel, they're in rebellion, they, they just they want nothing to do with it. All right? Unbelievers. Then there's true believers, those who have embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're the ones that God has drawn to himself 
by virtue of his grace. They've confessed their sins. They're, they've repented and are still repenting. They're pursuing Christ's likeness. They're walking with him. They're growing with him. And then there are professing believers, those who have all the marks of being believers. They attend church. They have Bibles, maybe multiple Bibles. They serve in ministry. They claim to follow Jesus. They believe in God. They live within the Christian culture and even the Christian bubble, yet truly have no personal walk with God. They are religious, but not righteous. They are good people, kind, affectionate, gentle, and loving, givers, servants, but not true believers, only professors. And his conviction was that the church is full of professing believers. And it shocked me. And I was still growing in my theology at that point in time, and really growing in my understanding of the gospel at that point in time, and it was part of the pieces of the puzzle that help me understand that the gospel is robust. It's not something we just kind of throw out willy-nilly and soft and all that kind of stuff. It's something that's very crisp and clear and bold. Now, what does Scripture say to us to help us here? And I'd like for us to look at a few verses of Scripture. There's a lot that we could say. In fact, that book, uh, the Gospel According to Jesus Christ would answer a lot of the things that we're going to be looking at right now. But we're just going to look at three passages of Scripture. We'll begin in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And I've just got a couple minutes here, so um, just hang with me here. and Just understand that there are some hard sayings that Jesus gives that should, again, to, to consider what's going on here. What is he saying to me? And and if this is true, could this be me? Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, does it sound that if that's true, that they were part of some kind of covenant community working together for the things of God? Right? Didn't we do all these things in verse 23? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. <laughs> All right. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 38. Very simple here. Jesus says, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You don't take up your cross. You don't follow me. You're not worthy of me. And to those who were listening to Jesus' words, they understood what it meant to take up the cross. It doesn't mean pick it up and go walk with it across the United States of America. What it means is you're willing to give up everything, so much so that you see this line of people that are crucified right now, you're even willing to hang yourself up on one of those crosses if that's what it means to follow me. The Jews, when they listened to this, they understood exactly what he was talking about because crucifixion was a common form of torture and sacrifice. Or I should say not, not sacrifice, but of uh, execution. Then there's uh, Luke chapter 14 and verse 27. Luke chapter 14 and verse 27. Luke chapter 14 and verse 27 says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross, similar language here, and come after me, Luke says, cannot be my disciple. Wow, it's not just that you're not worthy of me. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago? A disciple is not some kind of a second stage thing in a Christian walk. A disciple is a description of someone who has come to faith in Christ. It happens immediately at conversion. You become a disciple of Christ. But if you can't deny yourself and take up the cross, guess what? You cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. These are hard sayings. These are, these are tough 
passages, tough words from Jesus. There's another one I can't remember exactly where it is right now, but Jesus basically says, listen, if you're not willing to leave your mother and your father and your children and your kids and your own wife, you know what? You have to love me in such a way that it appears that you hate them. You're going to be my disciple? I'm looking for total, complete commitment. And here, here, listen to this. If you have gone through a superficial faith to try and satisfy family or spouse or a community of believers, and friends, if that is true, that means your destiny is still hell. And you may be fooled into thinking, I've gone through all the motions, I've gone through baptism, I've done all those things. But listen, if it was a superficial belief, your destiny is still hell. And I wouldn't want you to think that everything's fine with you and God when it's not. I just want to be honest with you. God wants us to see that coming to Him has nothing to do with our family, with our friends, with our spouses. It doesn't matter what they think. What matters is that you have said, you are my Savior. I'm committing myself totally to you, and my love for you and my commitment to you appears that I love you so much and I'm committed to you so much that everyone else is insignificant. He is Everything. Now, ultimately, we know the big picture. Jesus wants us as his children to love our families and our spouses and stuff, right? But you don't go to heaven and stand at the door and knock and say, well, I'm here representing my family. Can they all come in? No, it's one person, individual, face-to-face with Christ. That's a warning here, friends. And it's a warning that we need to consider. There's another dynamic here. I'll be quick. Introduction. What we have here is a transition passage. General in nature. It's alarming. It's shocking in nature. But it sets the stage for the two encounters that Jesus has with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. Because in the story of Nicodemus, Jesus is looking right into his heart. Jesus is getting down to the nitty-gritty. You must be born again. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is that believe referring to? It's not referring to superficial belief. It's referring to a robust gospel belief. And then the woman at the well Boy, can he see into her heart, right? You know, where's your husband? Well, um, well I'm not exactly sure. You know, well, I, yeah, you've had many, haven't you, right? And, and just, whoa, he really knows everything, right? So this is all preparation for Jesus now and for John to reveal Jesus in these personal, intimate encounters, revealing the hearts of these people. Why? Because he knows men's hearts. He knows man's condition. He knows that that he is, we call it, depraved. In and of himself, he is a sinful creature needing help without hope and only needing Jesus Christ ultimately to take care of him. Now, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table here in just a minute, um, but you've seen on, on the screen here a number of times I've used this, this picture of Rodin's The Thinker, right? If you, even today, you could do this. Great time to do it Sunday afternoon. You could leave here, you could drive across the bay and go to Stanford University and sitting outside their art gallery you would see the gates of hell. Anyone ever visited the gates of hell before? You ever want to visit the gates of hell? Go to Stanford, okay? <laughs> Just telling you, it's true. I've had, I've had pastors come from other countries and I say, hey, you want to go visit the gates of hell? I mean, you're in San Francisco, what do you, what do you expect, right? I'll show you the gates of hell, all right? The Gates of Hell is a sculpture um, by Rodin. And I'll, I understand if, if you go there, you'll see this. 
all these different parts of the sculpture are individual pieces. The thinker is just one individual piece of the greater sculpture. And that greater sculpture is the gates of hell. This is the gates of hell. There are the gates, there are the doors. You see all these people going, being sucked into the gates of hell. And who is sitting on top going like this? Contemplating the realities of the gates of hell. It's none other than the thinker. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? My friends, this passage today, I would just like for it to be, I think God has it there for a reason, to cause us to contemplate and to think about our walk with him. Is it the real deal? Or is it superficial? This is not an attack against anyone's character. This is a question that only you can answer for yourself because you know where you are. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. And I would encourage you, just allow what we've looked at today to be a means of preparation to say, God, where am I with this? Reveal to me. And if, if you need to, in the quietness of your seat, just appeal to God and say, God, forgive me for being superficial. Lord, I, I want to embrace you as my Lord and Savior. It may very well be that this is the day that the Lord has made for you to come to faith in him. And this may be the day for you as a child of God to, to reignite a passion for him and a seriousness in your walk with him. So let's take a few moments here to contemplate, to think about all that Jesus has shared with us today, we ask.